from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Welcome to part two of our chat with Congressman Ted Lieu and Jane Albrecht as we continue our Hacked series. Lean in on this one, because Ted's going to give us some priceless tips on our personal cybersecurity. I know you think you've heard it all, but trust me, you haven't. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. I would like to ask you a nasty question, Ted, if you don't mind. Are there studies and plans being designed to get ahead of potential challenges to, I don't know, our utility companies, our food supply? Or do you think we're just going to react to those challenges when they present themselves? Great question. For whatever reason, the, the Trump administration did not seem to take cybersecurity as seriously. They actually eliminated cybersecurity positions, uh, including a critical cybersecurity position at their National Security Council. The Biden-Harris administration seems to take cybersecurity much more seriously. So that's good. Also, the colonial pipeline hack and the harm it caused. Americans. I think that was a very big wake-up call for a lot of people in America, including businesses, as well as people working in state governments, local governments, as well as in the federal government. And people now realize that, wow, this is a pretty big deal. This is you know, not just Home Depot getting hacked. This is potentially a hack that could you know, severely affect the quality of lives of a lot of Americans. And now that that's happened, I am hopeful that we're going to get not only legislation passed on cybersecurity, but also more funding devoted to cybersecurity and hopefully more businesses to really wake up to the threat uh, that they're facing. As you continue to bring forth a lot of very thoughtful bills on this subject, it would seem that there are at least a variety of companies that are granted certain rights they're allowed to be a monopoly or a duopoly, like a water company or power companies or phone companies, for that matter. And it would seem that the government could add to those rights an obligation to have a plan in the event, not just to protect yourself as much as possible. But if you listen to the earlier part of the show, it sounds like it's inevitable that we're going to find ourselves tested. So shouldn't we have really solid plans? You know, I've been in New York City back when you watched the police force doing their practice sessions for terrorist acts. And it was very impressive. They had a very structured way of getting ready. Are we getting ready in the private sector, especially for companies like Water and Power? I don't know the answer to that. I would hope that because of the colonial pipeline hack, that utilities and other companies related to critical infrastructure saw what happened and now realize that they got to really bolster their own cybersecurity. We also have known, for example, that there were dams in America that also got hacked. You can see the problem with that, right? So it's not like it hasn't happened before in terms of critical infrastructure being hacked. It's just that colonial pipeline sort of exploded in public view. Which is a good thing, isn't it? Because it wakes us up. It's a good thing to get people to take it more seriously. It was not a good thing that you had people who were scared they couldn't get gas. That was a bad thing. Well, unless that wakes the rest of us up and we actually start paying more attention. Sounds like you are looking for that too, including how much attention you're getting on the floor of the Congress. That is correct. I think it's much more on people's minds now, both in Congress as well as uh, state houses uh, across the country. 
I want to talk about cryptocurrencies, bitcoins, and what have you, and on a couple of different levels. You know, there's an area where it seems like right now our government has absolutely no control over what's happening, and it's being used. Actually, it's being abused in such a way where it becomes a method of payment that is least trackable. On the other hand, you've got to actually raise a small flag and say that when the Department of Justice just got a, what was it, two point six billion back of the ransom that Colonial Pipeline paid. How did that work? They actually can trace it and bring it back. Can they actually stop crypto from being an answer for ransomware hackers? I commend the Department of Justice for recovering the majority of the funds back that Colonial Pipeline paid to the ransomware hackers. Usually, the hackers win. This is one of those instances where the good guys won. I do commend the Department of Justice for being able to do that. I don't know enough about that particular. Investigation as to how they exactly did that, but I am glad that they were able to do it and recover most of the funds. Do you think there's any kind of controls in the future of cryptocurrencies that the government will be able to exert? I'm not sure how the government would do that. Just the way cryptocurrencies are designed. At the same time, look, I note that currencies in general are not traceable, right? So cash is generally not traceable. Cryptocurrency is just another version, another form of it. So, the hacking problem predated cryptocurrencies. It's going to occur whether or not we try to make cryptocurrencies more traceable, even if that's possible. I'm not sure it is. But the primary problem is people not having technology to protect their businesses and employees or themselves engaging in bad uh, cyber practices. The problem with cryptocurrency is that. If the government doesn't get handle on it and cryptocurrency goes mainstream, it's a huge boon to organized crime in all sectors, of all types. So while the eliminating the middlemen of the bank may be appealing, it's a cost sector. This is something that the technology world is going to have to settle out. If governments can't control a currency, cryptocurrency is much more mobile than cash. Cash you have to physically carry to places. It's a tough thing. Is there any talk on Capitol Hill about trying to get a handle on it, or it's just too soon? There is talk, and I think we're going to have to see how it plays out and how it develops. You also do have some statements coming from the Department of Justice where they basically say a cryptocurrency in and of itself is not the problem. Uh, so I think we're going to have to wait and see, and we'll look for recommendations from the Department of Justice to see. What, if anything, should be done in terms of regulating cryptocurrency more? Is it reasonable to think that the government could choose to require private companies not to pay ransomware? I know that the FBI director made that his recommendation. He believed companies should not pay ransomware because it will encourage more ransomware attacks. Now, at the same time, that's pretty easy to say if you're not a hospital that's dealing with the lives of patients. So I think it just depends on the circumstances. In a sense, I guess I see that they could do it, but boy, would that be politically very hot potato for the very reason you just said. I mean, you're a company, you're a Colonial Pipeline. You want to get the oil flowing again, and uh, not to be able to do it. Plus, that kind of government control over private company is pretty tough. I could see that's a tough question. It would certainly seem that it would potentially reduce what seems to be an accelerating problem. 
is my perception wrong? Is it not really accelerating? It's just that we're talking about it more? At the hearing today, it was pretty clear that the problem is accelerating. And the FBI director, in response to one of my questions, did say that he believed that wouldn't get even more cyber attacks. We don't actually know, for example, how many ransomware attacks there are because there are companies that pay the ransom and move on because they don't they don't want this disclosure. It's just not even clear how much of this is even happening. But according to FBI director, he does believe there's going to be an increase in cyber attacks. It would only make sense because these hackers know that many American businesses are just not that well-prepared to defend against these attacks. Are we unique in that, or is this happening all over the world? I wouldn't know the answer to that. However, American businesses also tend to have a lot of funds. And so it might be more attractive for them to go after American businesses than businesses in a poor country. We talked a lot about companies and infrastructure that are basically from private industry but I have to ask you about you know nuclear power plants, Wall Street, air traffic control. Certainly, nuclear power plants must be the most secure thing on the planet, right? Are we feeling like that's something that can be offline and protected, or is that something that you're looking into as well? So, so energy under which nuclear power would fall is and has been designated as a critical infrastructure sector. So uh, my belief is that both Republican and Democratic administrations have been focused on protecting nuclear energy from being hacked or from other intrusions. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Ted, we've got our seatbelt on now. Can you give us some personal cybersecurity advice? If there's anything anyone remembers from this podcast, I hope they remember this, which is I would almost never access public Wi-Fi unless you're very sure of the exact name of that public Wi-Fi. So for example, let's say you were sitting at Starbucks and you try to get on Wi-Fi and two choices pop up, Starbucks or Starbucks one. Would you know which one was the correct Wi-Fi? I I wouldn't. No. Click on the wrong one. It could be a hacker sitting 15 feet away from you. And then that hacker who set up this fake Wi-Fi system would then get basically access to your phone and download all the contents on your phone in seconds. So what about Wi-Fi at airports where sometimes you have to pay a fee to get Wi-Fi? Should you stay away from those? So for example, let's say it came out where you had LAX or LAX airport. Do you know which one was the correct Wi-Fi address? No. I wouldn't. And so that's the problem. And so one way to fix it is you can get your own mobile Wi-Fi hotspot and just carry it around with you. So that's what I do. It's not that big of a device. Every retail telecommunications store sells it. It's not super expensive. So that's what I would recommend. I'm just curious, is that a problem for your cell phones as well, or is that strictly computers? It's a problem for 
anything that accesses Wi-Fi. So it could be your cell phone, or if you had a laptop at the airport and you're trying to access Wi-Fi, same problem. Unless you know and are very confident of the exact name of that public Wi-Fi address and you know it's a secure system, I would not access it. So you can also buy more data from your cellular provider when you're traveling, right? So you can just use access the internet through your cellular service? You could, but if you're going to spend money, you might as well just buy a portable mobile Wi-Fi hotspot. That would be okay. a much more efficient use of your money. But in general, connecting at a restaurant, you might not even know if that restaurant really has Wi-Fi. I would just have a wonderful meal and just not access Wi-Fi. You know what? That's great advice, Ted. And <laughs> this is great advice. <laughs> what other advice might you have for our listeners? Because that was really interesting. You saw that Congress member Mo Brooks tweet out a picture of his laptop. He was trying to make some point about some law that he had found on his laptop through some search engine. He didn't realize that he had also, in masking tape, taped onto his laptop screen oh. a password and a PIN number. Oh. His passcode? So just oh, don't do that. Don't tape passwords or PIN numbers to your laptop or to your computer. You never know who might <laughs> walk by, who might take a picture of it. Just don't do that. I would hope that there are none of our listeners that would consider doing such a thing, but that's probably good advice too. Something else to consider, I know sometimes people will use their phone camera to, for example, take a picture of their social security card or take a picture of other ID cards or driver's licenses or passports or whatever so that they can you know, access that information if they need it and so on. Uh, don't do that either. Uh, I had lunch with a professor at USC who was very involved with facial recognition. And one of the ways he does uh, his studies and gets data is he'll go on various websites that have lots of photos and pictures. And some of these websites, you would upload your pictures to them. And he now has this whole array of people's driver's licenses and social security cards, all these pictures that he has uh, from all these websites because he's just downloading this data. Uh, so just make sure that oh my gosh. whatever you take a picture of on your phone, don't do it with personally identifiable information or sensitive information because your phone also will upload that to the cloud as well, potentially. And if the cloud gets hacked, you also uh, have a problem. So how are you supposed to carry that information with you? For example, vaccination cards. I'm going to go traveling and I'm probably going to take a picture of my vaccination card and keep it on my phone in case I need it. So the only thing on that vaccination card that could be potentially problematic is your birth date. So if you really wanted to, you could put a masking tape over your birthday, take a picture of it. But if you took a picture of your social security card, you could see why that's a much greater problem. Is there a secure way to keep a picture of your driver's license on your phone or just you can't do it in a secure way? I just wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I mean, same thing with credit cards, just about anything. Interestingly, even a driver's license. Well, for example, a lot of people have very legitimate reasons. A lot of transactions are done by electronically digital signatures these days. And more than once recently, I've had to take a picture of my card, scan it, and then email it, even if you upload it securely for these documents. Sometimes medically they need it. So that's pretty tricky. Yes. If it's something that there's sort of no other way to do it, I think it's fine to do it. Just make sure you delete it 
and then go to your deleted file folder and delete it again. So it's gone from your phone. Yeah. When you delete it, does it get erased off the cloud if it's gone up to the cloud automatically? If it hasn't been uploaded yet. Okay. But on your iPhone, for example, if you delete a picture, Mm -hmm. it doesn't get deleted. It actually goes to a deleted file folder first. Right. But then Apple Cloud would delete it at some point. It depends on when your phone uploaded that picture. But most of the time, it doesn't immediately upload the picture. Actually, I just got a, a note from our producer, Joey. He asked about Apple Pay and the fact that when you have your cards in your digital wallet, is that an issue? Apple is generally pretty good about cybersecurity and protecting privacy. But it is a picture of it in your phone, essentially. Now, I mean, there's a risk, right? Anything potentially could, could be hacked, but but Apple's generally been pretty good in, in, in protecting consumer data. Interesting. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Congressman Ted Liu and Jane Albrecht. Ted, I'm sure that you would agree this is pretty sad, isn't it? That we have this level of concern. We have an interesting society where we, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go through and delete a whole bunch of photos from my phone after this conversation. And then go to your deleted file folder and do it again. And, and then I'll do it again. <laughs> I've got one last question. We, we all suffer from scam and spam phone calls as well as the scam emails. But it doesn't seem that the U.S. government, for all its efforts, can stop these calls, even though we report them to the Federal Trade Commission. Why is there any hope that the U.S. government could be any more effective against all these ransomware operators? It would depend on, I think, two things. One, how early in the process the federal government is engaged. And so if you're part of a business and you do get a ransomware attack, I would contact the FBI immediately. If they're engaged very early on, that would make a difference. And the second thing is there are ways to do preventive measures. So the FBI, in fact, uh, does these workshops, and I've done them with the FBI, with small businesses, where FBI agents will come out and basically give a briefing on how you can better protect yourself against ransomware or other forms of cyber attacks. So businesses do have resources that they can access at the federal governmental level. And then there's a whole bunch of private security companies that uh, solely exist to provide cybersecurity to private businesses. That is great information, but it's still, it's really prevention. It's not the government being able to really track down and bring these these people to justice. My understanding with the scam phone calls is because a lot of these scammers on the phone are from overseas. So the jurisdiction is an issue. Is that going to be the same with ransomware? Jurisdiction is an issue if it's overseas. Also, just the nature of the crime. Uh, hacking is just much more anonymous. Sometimes you get digital fingerprints. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes the hackers are very sophisticated and go through lots of different methods to conceal where the hack is coming from, it can get very complicated. And it is a crime that is much more anonymous uh, than other kinds of crimes. So that is simply a fact and a problem of the 21st century. So it sounds like the best defense is a strong defense. 
in this situation? It's a strong defense. It also makes sure you engage in good cyber practices, right? I mean, don't choose a pin. That's one, two, three, four. But also to think about what it is that you absolutely really need to put out there into the internet. And if you don't need to put it out there in the internet and it's confidential private information, don't do it. So I think if you just sort of do a little more thinking every day on what could potentially be hacked, it might alter what you're more willing to then, you know, stick in an email or take a picture of and put on your phone and so on. And then I would also consider uh, in terms of what you're doing when you're writing an email or doing any other thing and you're sending it on the internet, just assume that whatever you do could appear on the front pages of New York Times. And if you're okay with that, then go ahead and do whatever it is you're about to do. Oh, great advice, Ted. We appreciate. One thing I wanted to add, because I know this happened to a, a buddy of mine, sending wire instructions by email seems to be an, a, a real problem, at least without getting verbal confirmation, because apparently people get into your email, they change the wire instructions to their account that they open for 15 minutes, they get your accounting department to send a whole bunch of money, and somehow banks can't seem to follow that money and it's just gone. And I've heard a bunch of these things happening. That's correct, because again, you're not quite sure, right, that whoever it is you're communicating with on email is who they say they are, right? It's, it's really nearly impossible to know that unless you're doing something in real time with them and you hear their voice or see, see a video of them in real time. So for example, let's say someone is able to hack into your email. Well, then they're you, right? When they start sending out those emails. And if you've got friends, they won't know it's not you when they read an email from that hacked email with your name on it. And that is one of the problems of the 21st century, this anonymity and not being 100% sure that who you're communicating with is actually the person that they say they are. What about something we all have to do in this world, in this cyber world, which is today, if you want to have your contacts on more than one of your devices, your computer and your phone, maybe your iPad, second computer, or your calendar, if you want to be able to access it from any device, there's not much choice anymore than to let Apple or Microsoft upload that into the cloud. There, for a long time, I actually tried to sync directly between my phone and computer, and it worked, but it's not possible anymore. Plus, Microsoft, even the documents you create on your computer, they're forcing you to use the cloud. I resist to the strongest degree possible, but I guess there's a certain element where can you still fight this or you just have to sort of, to a certain degree, go along with the flow? So clearly there are advantages actually quite a bit to the cloud, right? There is an advantage to having a documented cloud that you can edit and access from anywhere and that multiple people could edit, you know, simultaneously and so on. So there's a, a bunch of advantages and it doesn't take up storage space on your computer or your, or your phone. The disadvantage is if it gets hacked, a lot of people are in a world of trouble. And so that's just the world we live in. Right. I guess the only saving grace for me is knowing that if the Apple cloud gets hacked, I'm way down the list as far as interesting people to attack. There's got to be uh, some solace in that. Ted, thank you so much for joining us again. 
you know you haven't heard The Last of Us. We're going to ask you to come back. We appreciate your remarkable candor and insight, and in this case, advice. Thank you so much. That's it for our Hacked series with Ted Liu. Thanks so much, Ted, for guiding us through this cyber labyrinth. I'm sure going to change a few habits after this episode. Don't forget, you can follow Ted on his formal Twitter, at RepTedLiu, R-E-P-T-E-D-L-I-E-U, or his own Twitter, at TedLiu. And thanks again, Jane, for all you do to forward this show. And if you didn't listen to part one of this series, go back and check out the last episode. You owe it to yourself to understand what's really going on in cybersecurity these days. And to you listening, don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for the next Meet Me in the Middle. And thanks to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. By the way, send this episode to someone you know who should be a little more informed. Or at least a bit more middle. See you next week, everybody. Kirko Media. Media for your mind.